Father, there is none higher, none more worthy than you. God, receive our praise. Receive our prayers. Hear our cry. God, we trust in you. scripture reading comes from Matthew 21, 23 to 27, and also chapter 22, 23 to 33. These passages can be found starting on page 826 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests And the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? And if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And on page 828, Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh, all of them, see, all of them, Oh, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Everett Metters. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. We're delighted to have you with us this morning. Join me as I pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your goodness towards us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for his death and resurrection on our behalf. Father, we thank you that the sum of your word is truth and that every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 
Father, speak to us now through your word and through your Holy Spirit. Help us to hear and to obey, to glorify Jesus and to trust in you. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So within the chronology of the story, as we're going through Matthew's gospel, Matthew's biography of Jesus, we're now on Tuesday of Holy Week. A couple of weeks ago, Mike preached to us from uh, the story of the triumphal entry, where Jesus came into Jerusalem proclaiming his messiahship by his actions, proclaiming that he was the one anointed and called by God to redeem and deliver Israel on Sunday. On Monday, he returned to the city and cleansed the temple to purify the worship of God's people. And now on Tuesday, he's back in the city preaching about the kingdom of God. And we're going to see today and more so next week that he's also being challenged by the rulers and the the leaders of the Jewish people of the day. And so today we're looking at two particular moments where they, they come and question him and challenge his authority and challenge his teaching and Jesus' response. So God had called the people of Israel from 1,800 years before this moment in Jerusalem to be a people set apart to him. He had created this world to be filled with people who reflected his glory. We had fallen away, so God called the family of the patriarch Abraham to be his people, to live in that glory, to display it to the world. And we see through the Old Testament that they have progressively failed in that until finally they were taken away into exile and then, uh, and then brought back but are living under the rule of Romans and under the rule of greedy, petty, priestly parties in Jerusalem that are more interested in their own power than in God's glory. But God's plan was to send his son to deliver not only Israel from their sin, but to deliver all people from their sin. And so Jesus has come. And what we want to see today is that Jesus offers us freedom and a new unlimited life as the people of God. And that if we want to live in that freedom, we must be prepared to live in obedience and to hope in God's power and to hear God's word. So the first part of that is that we must prepare to obey. We see in chapter 21, verses 23 to 27, the chief priests and the elders come to Jesus and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who said you could ride a donkey into Jerusalem like a king and come in and shut down the worship of the temple? Who gave you this authority? And something that we may miss from our perspective is that the chief priests and the elders are right to do this. It is appropriate 
for the priests and the elders of Israel to come to someone who casts the, uh, the people selling sacrifices and changing money, who casts them out of the temple, who shuts down the worship that they're accustomed to. It's right for them to ask that person, what is your authority? How can you claim to do this? They have a responsibility to guard the people of God from false prophets. That's a fair question. But it's also a continuing question throughout the book of Matthew. We see back in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is teaching outside his hometown at the time. And some people bring in a paralyzed man. He's been teaching and healing. So they bring this paralyzed guy into the house. And Jesus looks at him lying on the ground and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, who were one of the parties of the day, who were considered themselves guardians and teachers of the law, the Pharisees that were there were thinking to themselves, Who is this that claims he can forgive sins? Because forgiving sins is something that only God can do. And Jesus says, I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking, who is this that claims to forgive sins? Well, which is easier, to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man, the anointed one who's coming in the the line of David, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, rise, take up your mat and walk. And the paralyzed man gets up, takes his mat, and walks away. So there's been a question. It's not a direct question. It's it's a question that they're thinking, and he's answered it. I have the authority to do this because I'm the son of man. Again, in chapter 11, John the Baptist, who was... Jesus' cousin and who had come proclaiming repentance to the people of Israel to prepare them for their coming coming Messiah and who had recognized Jesus when Jesus came to him and recognized that he was the Messiah. He was the promised king. He was the deliverer. John had seen that. He baptized Jesus and then Jesus went away into the wilderness to be tempted and came back preaching. And now it's a little later and... Jesus' messiahship is not progressing as John had expected it to. And so John sends some of his followers to Jesus to say, just to to clarify, are you the one we are waiting for or should we look for another? And Jesus says to John's followers, have you not read in the book of Isaiah, the blind see, the dead walk, the dead walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Quoting words that were prophesied of the Messiah and pointing to things that Jesus was doing. This is the sign. Here are the people, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the dead being raised, the good news being preached to the poor. Draw your conclusion. But then he turns to the people and says about John, who did you go to see when you went to, saw, when you went to see John? Did you go to see a king? No, you didn't go to see a king. Did you go to see a reed blown in the wind? 
No, you didn't go to see that. You went to see a prophet, didn't you? You went out to the wilderness because you thought John was a prophet. And I tell you, he is not only a prophet. He is the greatest of all the prophets. He is Elijah who is to come and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. But the least in the kingdom of God is even greater than him. So Jesus says to the people, John was the last of the prophets. After John comes the Messiah. He doesn't then go on to say, by the way, I'm the Messiah, but he was the one John proclaimed. Draw your conclusions. Again, some Pharisees and Sadducees come to him and they say, hey, give us a sign that you are who you say you are. At which point Jesus could say, again, blind, deaf, lame, dead, good news. He could go through the whole litany again, but he just says this time, I'm not giving you a sign. A wicked and adulterous generation is asking for a sign. I will give you the sign of Jonah. The son of man will go down into the ground and after three days be raised. That'll be your sign. So there's been this buildup of questions about Jesus' authority throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And now, for almost the last time, the leaders come to him and say, where's your authority coming from? And Jesus, probably a little exasperated, says, let me ask you a question. What do you think about John the Baptist? Was his baptism, was his ministry from heaven or from man? Basically, was John a prophet sent by God or not? And if you answer me that question, I'll answer your question about authority. And so we see them, them coming together and discussing among themselves and realizing, well, we can't really say that it's from God because then he's going to want to know why we didn't believe him. And we can't really say that it was from man because everybody around us believe, believes he was a prophet and then the people will kill us. So they respond to Jesus. We don't know. We're not going to answer this question. And Jesus says to them, well, I'm not going to answer your question then. It was their responsibility to evaluate the prophets. It was their responsibility to guard the people from false prophets. If John wasn't a prophet, they need to say so. And if John was a prophet of God, then they need to obey him. And by responding, we don't know, They're turning away from that authority. They're turning away from their place in Israel, from their job. And Jesus isn't going to play that game. He is the one from God. He knows who he is. He's been doing signs up and down the Jordan Valley, in Galilee, in Jerusalem. He's been preaching repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God. He's been preaching faithfulness to God's law. If these men won't hear that authority, if they won't recognize the power of God that is with him, then there is no hope for them. John's message was a message of repentance. 
He said, I'm the one of the voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Level the mountains. Raise up the valleys. John was quoting Isaiah. And to call to the people to repent, to live holy and godly lives so that they would be ready, so that they would be prepared to receive God when he came. The priests and the elders heard John's message and they did not repent. They did not turn and walk in the justice and righteousness that God called them to. And so when Jesus came, preaching that same message and an even greater message, they were not ready to receive him because their concern was for their power and their place in the society. The chief priests and the elders of Jerusalem were the ones who ruled over the religious life of Israel. They were the ones who controlled the temple with all of that money changing that was going on and all of those sacrifices that were being sold. Their concern was for for their greatness and for the greatness of the temple. when their concern should have been for the glory of God. God didn't call Israel so that there would be a beautiful gold-embossed temple in Jerusalem. God called Israel so that his glory would be displayed to the nations, to all the world. And as I've been thinking about this this week and last week, It struck me that by the same token, God doesn't call us so that there's a building on Winchester Road in Libertyville that's full of people with awesome music and really good coffee. God didn't call us for that. God called us, and and he didn't call He didn't call us so that I could feel good about myself or so that you could feel good about yourself, that, hey, I'm called by God. This is great. No, he called us so that people in Libertyville and people in Vernon Hills and people in Mundelein and Grays Lake and at Northwestern University Library where I work and in Des Plaines and wherever you find yourself, God called us so that people in those places would be set free from their sin so that they would worship God with a full, joyful heart, so that they would love their neighbor as they love themselves. God calls us to be his people. He doesn't call us for our glory. He calls us for his glory. Which, knowing myself, it's a good thing. He didn't call for my glory. And he works his glory in us. And so he calls to us as well to repent and to live the life of the kingdom. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Jesus tells the story of the wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain came and the the wind blew and the floods came and, and that house stood firm because it was founded on a rock. And there was a foolish man who built his house on sand and when all that other stuff happened, bam, down goes the house. And what was the rock there? It was those who hear and do Jesus' words. 
He calls us to live what he's saying. This stuff that we've been hearing in Matthew about loving our neighbor, about giving to those who ask for us, about turning the other cheek, about telling the good news to the poor. Jesus means that. And if we want to receive God and we want to receive the power of God, then we have to be prepared by turning away from the selfishness and sinfulness and lust and greed and pride of our own hearts in walking in what he's called us to. So we must be prepared to obey, but we also must hope in God's power. So if you look next in chapter 22, the Sadducees come, and the Sadducees were a subgroup of the priests who, in fact, the high priest at this time was a Sadducee. And they're usually compared with the Pharisees. They're two opposing parties within within Judaism at the time. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. Once you died, you were dead. If you lived on, it was that you lived on in the memory of your loved ones who followed you, or you lived on in your children. But there was no resurrection, no afterlife. They, it's, it's believed that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, not the later prophets or the Psalms or any of those books. And they too were a party that was concerned with their power. They didn't need to worry about an afterlife because they had all the good stuff now. They were the rich in Jerusalem. They were the powerful in Jerusalem. So they come to Jesus and they ask him about the resurrection. They give him this this scenario, which is based on one of the laws of the Old Testament, that if a man dies without children, his brother should marry his wife and raise up children. And so they give him this scenario of these seven brothers who all marry the same woman, who all die childless. And and so their question is, if there's a resurrection, is is she now married to all seven guys? How does that work? And they don't even need to go to seven. Two brothers would have sufficed to, to, to raise this issue. And Jesus' response to them is is so interesting. In verse 29, he says, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he reverses the order, and he talks about the power of God first. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What he's identifying to the Sadducees is that you guys have way too small an image of God. You think that if there's going to be a new world, a new life, it's got to be just like this one. You think that if there's a resurrection, and you're probably hoping that if there was a resurrection, you'd still be the priests. You'd still be the one in charge. Your wife would still be your wife. Your kids would still be your kids. The order of society would be the same order of society as it is now. You're thinking God's going to make a duplicate copy of this world. Because you don't understand how powerful God is. You don't understand that he's making a new 
humanity. That, that all of this world that you see around you is going to be transformed into what it was designed to be, into what God hoped for it to be planned, into what God planned for it to be. You're thinking that, hey, if there was this afterlife thing and it was all perfect, then I could eat as much matzah as I want at tonight's Passover supper and I'd never get fat. But God is transforming you and transforming the world so that you won't want what is wrong. So that the desires you have now for sin will be completely taken away and you will desire what is good and what is right. And so, yeah, you'll eat all the matzah you want, but you won't want too much matzah. Marriage that God has given you as a sign for the relationship that he has prepared for his people will not be necessary in the same way that if you're traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee, once you're in Galilee, you don't need signs saying this way to Galilee anymore. Because you're there. You won't need this new relation, you won't need this old relationship that represents the relationship God has planned because you'll be in the relationship God has planned that it was supposed to represent. Your relationships will be so completely transformed that you can't imagine it now, is what he's telling to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees. God has prepared a resurrection and a new world for his people. Not just a disembodied existence where we float around on clouds and play harps and become angels. When Jesus mentions this part about they'll be like angels, the point isn't that they'll be in every way ontologically the way that angels are. but the point that they will be in renewed, perfect order with God. That they will be living an eternal life. And the hope and promise of the resurrection that we see in the scriptures is a resurrection of bodily and new existence. We don't know what it means. Paul talks about this in, in Corinthians in his letter that it's, you know, it's like, it's like a seed that you plant in the ground. The seed doesn't look like the tree. The seed doesn't look like the plant. But it becomes something newer and better and greater. This is the promise. This is what the Sadducees weren't seeing because they weren't understanding the power of God. And so often we don't understand the power of God. And one of the things that we need is to be continually reminded that our God is greater. Our God is immeasurably more powerful than what we can imagine. 
In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul talks about the immeasurable power of God toward those, or the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward those who believe, which is like the working of his great power when he raised Jesus from the dead. We can think about all the amazing things that we can do medically that people who lived in Jerusalem when Jesus was saying this couldn't do. And we can do some amazing stuff. But we can't raise the dead. We can't grow back severed limbs. God has a power that reaches beyond death. And we need to remind ourselves that his power is greater than what we can imagine. Right before, right before this, this whole complex of, of questions and answers that goes through chapters 21, or yeah, through the latter part of chapter 21 and 22 and into, into 23, Jesus is walking back to Jerusalem after he spent the night out, of, out in Bethany. And they see this fig tree that he has cursed, and it is completely withered. Mike talked about this some last week as its power of a symbol of what is happening here. That they, they came to this fig tree and it didn't have fruit and so it was cursed. In the same way that he comes to the temple and he comes to the leaders of the people and they don't have the fruit of repentance. And so they're going to be cursed. But the disciples also marvel at the power. Like, wow, you just withered this fig tree. And Jesus responds that if you have faith, this is possible for you. If you have faith, you can say to this mountain, pointing to either Mount Zion that is Jerusalem or to the Mount of Olives, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. And you, even though You are dead in sin and trespass. Even though I am dead in sin and trespasses, through faith, in the midst of my death, God can raise up fruit and glory for his kingdom. The sin that binds you, the sin that binds me, that is death, Jesus will cast aside. And by the power of God, whatever it is that binds you can be transformed and you can be set free. And by the power of God, whatever unbelief and whatever deception, God can pierce his light through that and bring faith and bring life. And by his power, The blind can see and the deaf can hear and the lame can walk and the dead can be raised. The Sadducees didn't understand the power of God because they were focused on what they had and not on who God was. And we also need to focus on the power of God and not on our own strength, not on our own might, not on our own circumstances. And we need to speak to one another and encourage one another and tell one another what God has done in us so that we might be encouraged, so that we might hope 
in his power and not in what we can imagine. And we need to hear God's word. Because this was the key problem for the Sadducees, even beyond the fact that they had this limited idea of what resurrection could be and of what God could do and how he could transform things. In verse 31, Jesus says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And I think Aaron and I were talking about this a couple of days ago, or I guess it was last week, and Aaron pointed out in verse 31, have you not read what was said to you by God? And Jesus goes on to quote something that was written 1,400 years before this moment. Something that God said to Moses when he was calling Moses to go down to Egypt and to deliver God's people. He identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But Jesus says to the Pharisees, Sadducees, we try to get through this without doing that one. One more time. Jesus says to the Sadducees, this word that was spoken to Moses, it is also a word that is spoken to you. God's word is living and active. It is not just dead letters on a page. But by his spirit, and again, by his power, he makes it alive in us and transforms us by it when we hear and when we obey. The Sadducees weren't hearing the word that was spoken to them, that God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not just the God of the universe or the God of the philosophers, but the God of specific people whom he called and to whom he made promises and to whom he was faithful, but not just faithful in the past. God was still faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were alive before him. That's the claim that Jesus is making. This is out of the law, out of Exodus. It's the part of the Bible that the Sadducees believed or claimed to believe. And Jesus is saying, look, even in your own word, even in your own scripture, it says this. I'm not going to point to Daniel. I'm not going to point to Isaiah. I'm not going to point to Job. I'm not going to point to the promises of the Psalms about resurrection and about eternal life. I'm not going to point to the fact that this is Tuesday and on Sunday I'm going to walk out of the grave as the first fruits of the resurrection. I'm going to point back to what you should have heard and listened to. The dead will live. And you've got to deal with that, he says to the Sadducees. It is the consistent promise of God's word 
that his people will not perish, but will live. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite parts of Psalm 103, which is a prayer of David, is where he talks about the fact that as for man, he's like grass. He flourishes in the morning and in the evening it withers and its place remembers it no more. So you compare our lives to the lives of the universe and it's nothing. We live, we die, we are forgotten. May be remembered by one or two generations. We are like grass. We flourish in the morning, the wind passes over us, and we are no more, and its place remembers it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. Even though we're grass, even though we're frail, flesh that must die and fail, the steadfast love of the Lord is on us from everlasting to everlasting. A few weeks ago, Michael preached from the promises of Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul compares our suffering, what we're going through now, however deep and however powerful it is, to the eternal weight of glory that is prepared for us. These are the words and the promises of God. And if we want to have this life that Jesus is promising, then we need to hear God's word. We need to speak God's word to one another. We need to come together so that we can test our understanding. Because if I had never read this word of Jesus here, about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I would never have understood that from Exodus chapter 3. I would have thought, he's the God of Jacob. Yeah, he's the God who appeared to Jacob. But no, he is currently the God of Jacob. We need to be together for growth in our communities, speaking God's word to one another, correcting our misunderstandings, correcting and reproving our rebellions, speaking encouragement and life to one another. Because God's word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing bone from marrow, and sanctifying and transforming his people. The Sadducees, priests, teachers of Israel were not hearing God's word. They were not hoping in his power. The chief priests and the elders who were to lead and call the people to repentance and to see that the people of God walked in the ways of God and lived in the life that God called were not prepared because they rejected God's call to repentance. 
They were satisfied with a life of wealth and ease. They couldn't imagine this new life. They didn't listen to God's word. And when they got the chance, when they built up their courage, they killed Jesus to shut him up and to silence his criticisms, to silence his call to repentance, to silence his pointing out, hey, you guys don't understand God's power or listen to his word. They killed him. But three days later, he walked out of the grave. He is alive forevermore. And he calls us into that same life that he lives, by that same power of God that raised him. That's what he calls us into. So prepare to obey, to hear his voice. Hope in the power of God. And hear God's word. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you that even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, because of the great love with which you loved us, because of your great mercy, you made us alive together with Christ. You seated us with him in the heavenly places so that you might show the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us hear your word and obey and respond. Father, fill us with your spirit that we would know you, that we would walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name and to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.